Hello, readers. Bill Buford is a James Beard award-winning reporter and the author of Heat, Among the Thugs, and his newest book, Dirt, Adventures in Lyon, as a chef in training, father, and sleuth looking for the secret of French cooking. Bill, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Never better. So, Bill, what was your goal in writing Dirt? Dirt was probably an excuse for me to get to France to learn how to be a French cook and do something that I've been wanting to do for two or three decades and putting off because I knew it was going to be really, really hard, but I had no idea how hard it was going to be, and dirt was my excuse. What were the circumstances around your first true meeting with Chef Michel Richard, and how did he help you begin this journey? I met Michelle Richard while waiting for a train from Union Station in Washington, D.C. to return to New York City after celebrating an anniversary with my wife. And we were right there at the head of a line after actually a fairly difficult anniversary when this large man smelling, I admit, of both alcohol and sweat, (laughs) red wine, it would turn out, appeared by my elbow. And my wife was engaged by her cell phone, sending messages to her girlfriend whose birthday we were returning to New York City to celebrate and wasn't noticing that the space in front of her had been targeted for Michelle Richard, that would turn out to be the man, to cue crash in front of her. And I, for some reason, felt indignant at the prospect and felt my chivalrous honor was at stake. So when the time came and the gate opened and he made his dash, I stepped in front of him and I elbowed him in his large stomach, as it turns out. And he just charged on forward, not expecting anyone to be there. And I then fell into his arms and then he kind of held me upright and we stopped looking at each other close enough to kiss. And that was the first time I met Michel Richard. The second time I met him was about... Ten minutes later, when it turns out he was in the same carriage that we were in on the train. And that was when I realized who he was. He was familiar to me. I knew he was somebody. But then I was like, oh, he is familiar. He is a chef. And I went and introduced myself and thus began the journey. He allowed me to work in his kitchen. And he was exactly the wrong person for me because he was so sophisticated and so creative. And he wouldn't do anything basic because he was anti-basic. And all I wanted was basic, but he was so French and inventive and charming and fun and full of giggles and accessible and witty that I thought, damn, there's, there's no other place I want to be. And that's where our journey began. You just mentioned your wife, Jessica, and she was an absolute saint through this entire book, including when you were making the weekly trek from New York to D.C. to cook in Richard's kitchen, leaving her to solo parent your twin toddler boys Monday through Friday. How was her effort exemplified by the first time your sons figured out how to escape their cribs? Oh, this was a bad moment. By then, I was working in Michelle Richard's kitchen. They were very generous to me. They didn't really treat me as like someone really working. I was working there. I was learning the line. I was learning the fish station. But it came with its privileges, including the fact that I could make a tuna burger for myself at the end of the shift and 
when I went up to the bar, although I insisted on paying, they wouldn't let me pay. So I kept leaving gigantic tips that I couldn't get the New Yorker to reimburse me for because I didn't have receipts. <laughs> but I had my share of very nice Pinot Noir. And then not only that, but I got to stay at the hotel at sort of special rate at the top. And I went to bed and didn't realize that my wife was texting me all night long because our twin boys had figured out how to get out of the crib. They got out and laughed and she put them back and then they got out and they laughed and she put them back. And she said by her conservative count, she did that a hundred times before she finally gave up. <laughs> and then they got out and then they went to the fridge and they opened up the fridge and they took everything out and just had a hoot in a puddle of ice cream and milk and orange juice and all of it and broken eggs all around the floor, which my wife discovered sometime around three in the morning when she certainly couldn't reach me by phone. She'd given up on texting. I was trying to phone me. It was a moment when this plan where she stayed in New York looking after our fairly recently born twin boys. There were then two. And my working in this kitchen in Washington, D.C. just wasn't going to work. What were the circumstances that pointed you to Lyon and how did Jessica help seal the deal? I never thought that I would go to Lyon. I knew I had to go to France and do something. Given that we had twins and that we were about to enroll them in preschool in New York City, I didn't have a big window. It looked like maximum six months, but I thought it would be Paris, a bistro somewhere or someone. In the kitchen, though, and I started asking her, who should I work for, and who they recommend, and then suddenly several people in the kitchen said, ah, Lyon, that's where you need to go. Lyon, it's the gastronomic capital of the world. It, they call themselves the Lyonnais. It's where it all started. It's the heart of the heart. In Paris, you have all these different nationalities competing with their national cuisines, and it's a very international city, like New York's an international city, but Lyon, it's like pure France. And I thought, okay. And I finally put it to my wife, again, after another stressful day with the twins, and came up with this plan where We'd go over together, and then they'd go back, and then I'd stay on, and then maybe I'd come back, and then I'd go back again. And Jessica said, no, no, you're not doing that. And I was <laughs> taken aback. I was a little frightened, meaning, no, you're not doing this. We're giving up on this project. You're not going to France. You're not going to learn French speaking. But it was, no, we are going together. We're moving to Lyon. And I was still in Washington, D.C. on the phone, and I remember thinking, wow, that's radical. I said, don't worry, I'll figure it out. In fact, it turned out to be very, very complicated, but it is what happened. And we then moved to Lyon and stayed five years. So the lead up to you moving to Lyon involved Jessica going there first to get everything set up, leaving you to take care of the boys and eventually heading there a few days later. You ended up having a great final goodbye with Michelle Richard, where you get a sitter for the night and you go back down to D.C. and there's some special moments that you share in the book. But eventually it's the time for you guys to get your flight to what would eventually be Lyon, France. But you end up missing that flight, leaving Jessica there by herself for a couple more days. Why was the phone call to let her know what had happened such a nader in your marriage? Well, we were doing this mad thing. We had jobs in New York. We had a life. And 
now we're going to the city where neither one of us had lived and we didn't know it. I mean, we made a couple of business by that point. And she was gung-ho. She was making it work. She signed a lease for the apartment. She did the inventory. She made trips out to Ikea to furnish it with Ikea furniture. Because in Lyon at the time, it's probably changed, but at the time, all apartments are completely, completely unfurnished to the extent that you have to arrive with your oven and your refrigerator and your lampshade, light bulb, everything. You have everything. And she got it all fixed up. She was really making this mad project work. And then missing her babies, missing her husband, remarkably, looking forward to their arriving, having planned a sitter for the next night so we can go out and have a long-awaited date night. Her husband misses the flight, and I call her, and the apartment, which had seemed so excitingly echoey when she first got the key and moved in, was now really forlornly echoey as she was the only one there, and we weren't there, and I could feel real panic in her voice. It's the panic of someone who realizes, oh, you know... I might have made a big mistake marrying this guy. And that was a uh, an epiphanous moment for you to maybe be a little bit more on top of certain things? It should have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it should have been. Alas, it was more symptomatic of what was to come. Was Leon an easy town to feel at home in from the get-go? Absolutely. They opened their doors. They welcomed us. They gave us <laughs> gifts. The neighbors introduced themselves. There were chefs who wanted me to work for them. It was fabulous. It did not happen. It was a city that doesn't like visitors, doesn't warm to visitors, has very good reasons over the course of the last 2,000 years for regarding visitors as dangerous. And we arrived in the winter. I arrived late, and then we had to dash off because I got a literary prize and went to Rome to collect it. And then by the time we got back, our flight was delayed because it was snowing and the schools closed, and we didn't know if the boys were in school. And that was the longest, longest Christmas. Everything was gone. Everything was closed. I tried to buy a turkey. There were no turkeys. I tried to buy a duck. There was no duck. We ended up buying this massive capon that would have fed oh, our whole city block. And we had a hard start. It actually took us several months before we could sort of pop up our heads and say, oh, maybe this is going to work. <laughs> yeah. If you're moving countries, I really don't recommend doing it in December when the schools are closing and the shops are closed and the restaurants are closed, especially if your idea is to work in one. No, you want to go now. This is the time of year you want to go. You don't want to go in the middle of winter. What else happened earlier in your stay involving your son, Frederick, and a cab driver that really opened your eyes to the reality of your new situation? Yes, that was our first proper morning because I flew over. The next day we had to fly to Rome. Several days later, we flew back on a Friday, and then it snowed, and then it cleared up on a Saturday morning, and I reenacted a ritual that we had in New York where I would take the boys out for breakfast and then we'd go shopping, and this time I decided that we'd go shopping at the Marché Paul Bocuse, the Léal de Paul Bocuse. But I didn't know my way around, so I took a taxi. It wasn't very far. The taxi was very expensive. No matter. We were just finding our way. And then 
as we were getting out and I was about to pay the taxi driver, he leaned between the seats and scolded Frederick for putting his shoes on the seat. Frederick's, his legs, they didn't extend past the seat. He's a little guy then. And then he smacked him twice. He hit my son with the ring-bearing finger of his hand. And I paused. I had to get my children out of the car. And then I composed what I thought was the best invective and filth and anger at the taxi driver and said what I thought was something like, if you do that again, I'm going to pull out your eyeballs with my fingernails. Something like that. It was, he said, merci, monsieur. <laughs> it was a glimpse of one. I had a long way to go before I'd be able to swear at someone in French. There have been subsequent episodes after that. I discovered that if you get in that kind of jam, you really shouldn't be swearing at anybody. But if you get in that kind of jam, they do understand English and they understand the dirtiest words in English. And those are really, really effective. But the <laughs> other thing was that the Leonay beat their children. And yeah. it became a big episode that the boys had a meeting once with the Phoenist. The orthophonist is the specialist in speech, and she's there to confirm that all the children are learning French pronunciation. And as it turns out, they're having the same problems I'm having, and they're not mastering French pronunciation. And she had a meeting with the boys, and she said somehow the word fesse came up, and the boys said they didn't know what the word fesse meant. And she thought she was being made fun of. She said, of course you know what the word fesse meant. And they said, no, we don't know what the word festive is. And then she was convinced that there was, this is a great joke at her expense. And it was only later when she met with my wife to complain that the boys were making fun of her. She said, well, fesse is to spank, and we don't do that. It's such a given that you hit your children. Uh, it was shocking. So you go there to hopefully stage at one of the world-class restaurants in the city or in the area. You have a plan A and plan B. Neither work out, though. So where did you end up initially staging in Lyon? Plan A was a great restaurant. Plan B was a famous restaurant. Then I went to the Bucu's Door, which is this biannual celebration of the greatest cooking in the world. And I realized, man... There's no way I'm going to be up there at that stage or anywhere near it or doing the kind of cooking they're doing. And I got home, and uh, there is a celebrated boulangerie just across the street from us, a baker who makes what the Lyonnais regard as the best bread in the city. And here he is right there and eating his bread. It's the first thing the boys ate when we arrived in the city. And I'm going over there, and I'm going to become a baker. And I walked over late because – the baker calls himself Bob. Didn't know why he calls himself Bob. Never ever, ever did figure out why he called himself Bob because his name is Eve. And said, Bob, you know what I'm doing. I'm writing this book, and I'm going to start with you if you'll have me. And he said, you're not going to start with me. No, you didn't come to Lyon to work for me. And I went, oh, man, plan B, Bob, plan A is long gone, plan C. I'm failing on plan C as well. But he came around. And I finally had a place where I could start. Speaking of your experience at Bocuse Dior, how weird did it get when the man himself, when Paul Bocuse ends up showing up? How strange did that scene become? It was an amazing moment in itself because Paul Bocuse in France, but Paul Bocuse in Lyon, they call them 
Monsieur Paul, like he's everybody's friend, but sometimes they call him the Pope of Lyon. But he's actually a deity. He's a god. And you don't see him that much until you kind of learn his routines. And then actually I ended up seeing him quite frequently. But he appeared with his toque and his chef clogs and his apron, just wandered out on the stage. I was there with a journalist credential, so I was on the stage. And I wasn't talking to anyone. I was just viewing the competitors. And when everybody realized, oh, wow, Paul Bacuse is on the stage. And they're all working on a deadline because it's a very, very competitive cooking contest. And you've only got so many hours to do the most elaborate cooking that you'll ever see in your life. And they abandoned their stations and they started following him like a conga dance. And somebody was holding onto his sleeve and somebody else was holding onto the person holding onto the sleeve until it was like a conga line that sort of like was weaving back and forth like a snake. And then it got even crazier that every now and then someone would go and touch the hem of his apron and start screaming as if he had Paul Bacuse on his hand. And there was one guy who like rubbed his hands into where Paul Bacuse had tread and it was really, really getting wild. Incomprehensible. And then someone very gently directed Paul Bacuse through a stage door and took him off. But realize I'm in a weird food city. <laughs> Regarding your time with Bob the Baker, I really enjoyed your description of what the scene was like in his bakery from Saturday into Sunday. And I also loved hearing about how Bob eventually takes you on deliveries to, in his words, meet the real Leon. What did those deliveries expose about your new home that you hadn't seen before? Well, one of the things it exposed me to is Bob's car, which is the filthiest vehicle I've ever, <laughs> ever in my life. It's the kind of thing you, when you get out, you go, I know I have to go home now and bathe. It's got so much detritus and food and drinks and newspapers and mainly so much flour because he sticks all his loaves in there that the air has sort of reached a point of post-saturation and the flour just cascades on you the whole time you're riding. But he delivered his bread to a whole bunch of small restaurants, no big restaurants, couple had a Michelin star or had been recognized by the Michelin guide, but none of the big operations, but all of them independent eateries fashioned by sometimes two people in the back and one in the front, sometimes one and one, sometimes a little bit more. And we went all over the city and it was a glimpse of a city of small independent people making really good, very seasonal food as best they could in a French tradition and a Lyonnais tradition, often traditional Lyonnais dishes and often the best meals, often lunchtime where you get like a three course lunch, including wine for 12 euros, $15. It's the real appeal of Lyon. It's what they call the rapport, the qualité et prix. It's the great rapport of quality and price. And also I saw people who really understood what Bob was doing. He made a bread that had a purity of flavor and an integrity of his preparation that no one else's bread did. And there was craft in it, artisan craft that they all understood and they're all grateful for. It was this confederation of people who really understood basic things like what good bread should taste like, what good butter should taste like, what ice cream that you make yourself every day 
should taste like, what a simple good wine should taste like. There were famous restaurants in the Leona, and we'd been to them, but it was the first time that I really understood the city as a gastronomic capital, which is what it was referred to in the 1930s, and people have every reason to dispute that claim now, except that at the heart of the city, there is a conviction that nothing matters more in your day than a simple meal of good food, carefully prepared, eaten at the table without distraction of cell phones or music or anything else with somebody else. Sometimes not even with somebody else, just a simple meal. And it was like, oh, I think I'm finally starting to get this place. How did Bob respond when you asked him about what the secret to his delicious bread was? Oh, it's very simple. I mean, I'm guessing. Is it the yeast? No. Is it the second rising? No. <laughs> is, it, is it the length of rising? Because he's bread, he always starts and he goes to the second rising, goes to the night before. Uh, no. But what is it? He said, the flour. <laughs> the flour? Oui. La farine? Oui. The flour? I thought, flour is flour is flour. How can it be the flour? He said, oh, no, actually, it's the flour. And it kind of haunted me because his bread really was different from any bread that I'd had before. Some of that was technique. I remember he was really proud of the fact that his baguette, if you broke it in half, it cracked. And it cracked because it was crispy, golden on the outside and almost like cake in the middle. And there's a real purity of technique there. And he uses the razor blade to starify the outside of the baguette so it rises up in a particularly crusty way. But the heart of it was the flavor. It was long. It was a little fruity. It was weirdly never bloating. It was the first time I ate bread and thought, oh, I get it. This is what it was like sort of before the French Revolution. This is bread as food. And then our son Frederick developed a habit when he got Bob's bread, and it was a test, also became a test of if it is Bob's bread, he would break it in half and he'd stick his nose into the bread. He'd stick it right into it until he got the smell that he was recognizing. And it's the smell of living, fruity plant. What we got from that flower was wheat that was grown in old soil, often volcanic soil, it hadn't been ruined. And a lot of the farms in that part of France, they've never used pesticides because there's still small holdings of small farmers. And I know from the farmers I met, they never used pesticides because they never had, and pesticides were expensive, and they're not making any money anyways. And why are they going to use pesticides? So there's a tradition of soil that's not ruined. And... Then there's a kind of respect for the ingredient itself, so it's not milled in massive quantities. It's milled as you need it, and therefore it doesn't go to starch as quickly. It's really bread as a food. It was such a discovery. Once we realized that, like in the beginning, the boys had a really hard time eating them, I guess, because it was so crunchy on the outside that it was hard for them. There's still three. There were three. But eventually it became our favorite food, and we were in his boulangerie, Every day, at least twice a day, except for Wednesdays when he closed, which is kind of a very sad time in our cartier because there was no Bob. And also because we had this triangle, which is formed by 
the boys' school, our home, and Bob's Boulangerie, and they were, we were all equal distance from each other. So when we pick up the boys at school, there was a practice of, in a French school, you don't eat between meals ever, except for the goûte, if you're a child, and some adults practice the goûte as well. So at 4 o'clock, you have this snack, and we would often get our snack at Bob's. We sometimes we'd be there three times a day. It was like the hearth of our neighborhood. It was like a campfire that everybody needed. It was a beautiful thing to have in our life. Love that imagery there. You begged and pleaded your way to a pig kill. Why is this such a special ritual in France, and what was your primary job during this slaughter? In the south of France, especially around the Rhone Valley and the the Verne, there is a traditional practice in the winter of killing a pig or two, a local farmer's practice. And you then spend the day breaking the pig down. Very little of the pig is eaten, you know, like a roast, because a roast is, is so luxurious and you can finish a roast with a big family table, but if you take that same meat and you, you cure it and you dry it, then it can last you for the whole year and you eat much less of it. It's an enormous source of nutrition. And on the day, you make boudinois, blood sausages, and that is the principal thing we were doing. In the European regulations, every farmer is allowed to kill his own or her own pig or pigs, a couple pigs, I think they're allowed, in the traditional way. And it was dramatic. The first objective was to get the blood for the boudin noir, which was our lunch. So when the pig was on its side, there was one figure who was a butcher who very discreetly had kept the blade inside his sleeve and approached the pig with it from underneath the snout so the pig never saw it because pigs are so, so aware and sliced the pig's it was a sow, big, beautiful sow. Sliced her artery discreetly. It was like four of us working together. And then one guy then started pumping the, the pig was on the side, started pumping the leg, the front leg, the shoulder, to pump out the blood. And I was the one collecting the blood and was told to stir it with my hand. And I understood the instruction, but I didn't really understand the point of the instruction until... I wasn't stirring it fast enough, and my host started yelling at me because the blood was starting to visibly, viscerally, very physically coagulate around my fingers like string, like lots of string. And I said, Rim away, rim away, rim away. Stir, 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 stir. And I panicked. I've got all this business, and this is our lunch, and we're not going to have our lunch, and we've killed this pig. And one of the things we wanted for was the boudin noir, and I've ruined it. And I stir, 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 stir. And then they started to melt, the strings. They started to melt. And then the pig had emptied itself of its blood. And then they gave me a ladle and said, good day, taste. And I've never tasted warm, bright red blood from an animal that I've just killed. Sure, you have tried it. I mean, I... Never done that before. And I thought it was fabulous. It was amazing. They added some salt that helped for my second ladle full. But it is like 
rich, iron, and tense, beautiful. So it didn't elicit a gag reflex at all. You enjoyed it from the get. I didn't know what it was going to be like. My colleagues were amused. I was surprised that one of them had a ladle in his back pocket. It's not the kind of thing that I would expect anybody to walk around with, but he had a ladle in his back pocket. So I thought, all right, maybe I'm being set up. I mean, later they would give me other things. Like they gave me the, the Vessi to blow up. The Vessi is the bladder. And it's a pretty coarse material. It does have an amazing ability to stretch. In fact, there's a famous Leonet dish, which is cooked in a bladder, a chicken in a bladder. In fact, I have some bladders at home, which I've smuggled in, or had smuggled in for me from France, that I'm about to cook a chicken in even this week. But it's, um, it's hard, you know, I try to blow up and nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. They're laughing, laughing, laughing. And then finally, my face probably turning purple, finally it gave and I could, was able to blow up the bladder. And so I thought it was maybe kind of a prank on the same level, but actually I didn't know what to expect, but I really liked it. It was felt to me like drinking energy. It was very buzzy. And it might've been, you know, all the drama of killing the pig and I've just been doing the blood and I'm at this farm and it's early morning. But for me, it was like drinking energy. You come to a conclusion, thanks to your friend Dorothy Hamilton, insisting that you need to attend a formal cooking school to really learn French cooking, where you talk your way into l'Institut Paul Bocuse. You learned a lot of unwritten rules about French cooking and the kitchen during your time in this school, and then also in kitchens as well, like towel placement and usage and trimming green beans with fingers and not a knife. I personally, since reading your book, have stopped crossing my hands when prepping. I think that is an incredibly invaluable thing that may not be common sense to those who have been cooking for a short or even long amount of time. But were there any unwritten rules of French cooking that you disagreed with? Very little. And your point about crossing the hands was amazing. Several times people would stand behind me and they'd say, wow, why are you so slow? And then they'd make me do whatever task I was doing, whether it was boning a fish or cutting peppers, which is what I think was the ingredient in question when I learned never to cross my hands. And then they go, oh, no one ever told you that you don't do that? And they go, no, no one ever told me. That's why I came here. No one didn't tell me. <laughs> so if you've got something like seeding a pepper and then cutting it or whatever you're doing to it, you got your cutting board and you arrange like a bowl in front of you and then maybe the ingredients to your left. You have like three receptacle places to deposit different things. And then you make a point of organizing your work so that you don't cross your hands. And if you're doing a lot of stuff, then it makes a big difference. But if you're doing a little bit for dinner, Nobody wants to take more time making dinner than you have to. I still can't entirely figure out why you can't cut the ends of green beans. And the, the French beans are a slightly different variety. They're called haricots And they do have a delicacy. There is something about if you slice the tip, there is a kind of conspicuous jaggedness to the cut. I'm going to have to speak to people about it. It's the one thing I don't know. Why? Why? You've got to do each one by your fingertips. And they really think you should do each one by your fingers. Okay, tell so you, wow, I'll do each one by your fingers. Okay, okay. you got a lot of beans and you're cooking for 30 people or something like that. But most things, they have a logic. The way you whisk, the way you use a spatula in your bowl, the rules of the cutting board, how you turn a vegetable. 
that fact that you did turn a vegetable or more subtle things like they really don't believe in skinning a vegetable unless you have to. And that's because not only the most nutrition, but the most flavor is right there in the skin. Michelle Richard described it to me when he was singing the phrase of the apple skin. It's like all the food is like going outward, going outward, going outward, and it stops in the skin. And so all the force of the growing goes into the skin. So if you clean a carrot, we all take we have these metal slicers and we slice up our carrot. It looks all pretty and orange. But actually we've lost 15% of the weight of the carrot and maybe 50% of the nutrition. Whereas if you wash it, and then scrape it a little bit where you need to if you're going to have some dirt. But if you wash it, just gently. You don't want to grind dirt in your teeth while you're eating something, but you can get that off. And the same thing's for a, a potato. I learned finally to peel my potatoes with a knife. And part of that is because I, one, I use many fewer strokes, and two, I don't get my knuckles with the potato peeler, <laughs> which I do if I'm holding cause a potato in your hand and the peeler, it doesn't work. And then three, once you get the knack of it, you're able to stay as close as you can to the skin. And a great belief in the skin of the vegetable. So Saturdays were your one true day off to enjoy time with the family. On a June Saturday, you took the family to eat more of the pig that you had slaughtered a couple months earlier. What was the bucolic moment that you experienced in a wheat field that day? Oh, this was a lovely day. We've been in France about nearly six months, and some of the pig cuts were cured and ready to eat. Some of them were eaten before they were entirely cured, and that was a different order of experience. And then it was spring. All those barren trees now had leaves. There was an abundance of cherries, and we went walking, just went for a walk down a hill. It was like the movie version. It, there's a breeze. The sun's not setting yet, but you've got these beautiful wheat fields and you walk down and you have your children and you're all loving each other and the children have spent the afternoon playing with sheep and this is okay. Yeah, it's not Provence. It's not all that pretty. It's a hard city where we're living, but this is okay. And then as we went back up the hill and realized, oh, this is much steeper than we thought. We also realized that our shoes kept falling through the soil from the varmints digging under, probably moles that were digging underneath it. And our skin was covered with bites, all kinds of bites, not like mosquito bites, and we were bleeding. And the boys didn't want it to be carried because they were starting to bleed. And they had an early appreciation of what wheat, not grown with pesticides and toxins to control the production, is like. And it's a very rich, foamy soil full of straw and old roots and crawling things. And it was, it was alive. It was so alive. It was having us for dinner, but it was that kind of living soil that I came to realize that's where Bob's wheat grows. And it's that kind of living soil that has just qualities of nutrition, fertility, and vitality. That's the way it should be. You don't kill things to make the thing you need to live on. It was just a wonderful glimpse at the beauty of natural agriculture. 
while you're still in school, you end up landing a 17-day stage at what was initially your plan A when y'all had moved to Lyon at La Mer Brasier. Throughout that process, you learned a ton. It certainly advanced your overall understanding of French cooking, but you were also understandably slow in that kitchen at first. When did you realize you had sped up, and why did it happen? Oh, it happened because I was a, we call them a stagiaire, and I was doing a lot of the prep. And I was also doing the starters, and the amuse-bouche, and the, the first course from the Galmanger, which are prepared ahead of time, very rarely at the last minute. And then I asked to work on the line. And I got along with Mathieu Vienne, the patron, the chef and owner. And he said, uh, he just took a really quick panic breath. Like, <gasps> and I thought, oh, shit, it's not going to happen. You know, I'm, all this stuff. I'm not going to get on the line. <laughs> and he said, well, you're a good cook. I said, well, thank you. But I said, but I'm slow. Aren't I? He said, no, you're late. And you have to prove that you can work reliably and quickly by making the staff meal, which was a very intimidating but very exciting prospect. It was like about 30 people then. So I was making French food for French people, and that's kind of why I came. But it took me a long... I was still slow. It's kind of the slowness of like crossing your hands magnified many times. It's a lack of focus. And it was kind of an exhilarating discovery when I started watching the people see what they were doing. Everybody had techniques that I'd learned at the Institute Public Coups, but there was something else. And it came to me when I was on the line and it was very, very busy and I had to get something from the back and I had to co- run past the chef and I had to run to the back and through garmanger and through pastry and then get this thing from the dishwasher. And I did a Frankenstein walk. I did it, I thought, in parody. It's a very familiar walk that you see in the kitchen where you're looking straight forward your arms are by your side, and you're moving as fast as you can while still walking without any direction. It's kind of like a horse with blinkers that's at a gallop. <laughs> and I thought it was a joke, but maybe I was just trying it out, or maybe I didn't know when suddenly from across the kitchen, one of the people I first worked with called out my name and said, Bill, Bill, you've got it. You've arrived. You're a chef. Ah, do you know what you look like in the beginning? It's like a raggedy Ann doll with your head going this way and that way and licking left and looking right. You did it. You did it. You finally understand. And I thought, oh, so maybe it wasn't a joke. And it was a little bit of an epiphany. It wasn't that I then spent the rest of my time walking like that, but I started, I got a new kind of focus. And it was always knowing not just what I was going to do next, but what I was going to do after that and what I was going to do after that and what I was going to do after that. And I got to if I knew the five next things I had to do, that I'd be really, really focused. If only I could live the rest of my life like that now, especially during these times where I was all this email. But it was kitchen changing. And I came to regard it as kitchen brain. The just complete focus on what you're doing. It was very liberating. A subplot in this book was your theory that Italy influenced the origins of French technique more than the people of Lyon wanted to admit. Did you ever find compelling evidence one way or the other on this? I went into this skeptically. It was when I worked as a butcher in Chianti, which is described in the first food book I wrote, Heat. Everybody said, well, of course, the Italians invented French cooking, which was so ludicrous, I thought, these guys are really bonkers. No, no, no. Catherine de Medici went over there and she introduced the artichoke and the shallots and she introduced this and she introduced that. You guys are crackers. 
And I looked into it at the time, thought, well, there might be something to it. And they all said it all started in Lyon. I thought, well, it's because the Italians were in Lyon. And then I gave up on it. But then when I got to Lyon, I thought, there really might be something to this because it's a long time ago. It's the Renaissance. But what Italian cooking was during its Renaissance is no longer what Italian cooking is today. But it was an idea that, like a Renaissance, you have artists who make sculptures, who paint, who design buildings. This is a great awakening of the arts and science. And it extended to the kitchen. And when you see it like that, it makes a lot of sense. The French didn't have a Renaissance. The French craved everything that the Italian Renaissance had. They snuck over silk workers from Northern Italy because Northern Italy had this great tradition of making exquisite silks. They brought over architects. Many of the famous chateaux on the Loire River are designed by Italians. And it looked to me that they were getting inspiration from the Italians in the kitchen. And Lyon was unusual because it was an Italian colony, which is seldom recognized. But it was almost its own nation state. It had its own constitution. What is now called Ville Lyon, the largest intact Renaissance habitation in Europe, which is now recognized by UNESCO, was where they lived. And they built beautiful mansions. And they had vets. And they had Italian cooks. And they had a whole Renaissance sense of celebration and feast. And Lyon, at that time, was the principal place, and the only place, really, that was publishing cookbooks in general, and especially cookbooks in translation, and many of them were Italian. And he started to put these little blocks together, and he goes, you know, this is more than a coincidence. There's actually quite a lot here. And I went pretty deep. French cooking became itself at a certain point, and there is a lot of Italian influence. At a certain point, I think the date is 1651, when finally there was a famous French cookbook called uh, Le Cuisinier Francois, almost like a declaration of independence. We are French and we have French cooking. And you cannot see obvious Italian influences there in that book, but for a whole century before that, they're there. And there's a lot to it. The Italians kind of showed the French the way. And one virtue of this for me is also there is a point when French food does become French. And then it becomes very important to French culture. It becomes the idea of what it means to be French. And that became interesting to me, too. It was interesting to me learning that, despite the fact that the word is French of origin, that vinaigrette was also done by the Italians first. That's another little tidbit that you get from reading this fantastic book, Dirt. Bill, you write about four deaths of significance near the end of the book. Paul Bocuse, Dorothy Hamilton, Bob the Baker, and Michelle Richard. Which death affected you the most profoundly and why? Well, Paul Bocuse affected me the least because I knew him the least. I didn't know him. And his was like an historical death. He was aged. He wasn't well. He had pretty advanced Parkinson's, it looked like. And it was the end of an era. It was a historical moment. Dorothy became a dear friend and a great influence, and she got killed in a head-on collision in Newfoundland. And it was very, very sad. Michelle was very dear. But Bob was 
devastating. At one point in the summer before he died, I remember we had this wonderful apartment with windows that opened up onto the zone and Via Leon outside it. And I remember somebody taking in the smells coming from the boulangerie and said, if we owned this apartment, which we didn't, and we never did. I was trying to sell it. Its unique selling point would be Bob's bread and the smell of Bob's bread. You will not get that anywhere else in Lyon. And I came to realize that Bob had made us feel comfortable in the quartier in a way that I never expected. And I thought, Bob is the reason why we don't want to go home. And then we had a lots of dinner. He told us stories of his family. And then shortly after, like a week or two later, his father died. And then a week or two later, his brother, who had persuaded Bob to become a baker and had started the boulangerie with him, he died. And then Bob went into a terrible, terrible depression and thought about his brother every night and mourned his brother while he was working in the boulangerie and sometimes howled when in a piece of vandalism someone threw a rock through a window and Bob gave chase and fell and broke his leg in several places. And then we didn't have any bread. And finally he was coming back and we had a big party and we're going to celebrate his coming back and he was going to be there. And what we didn't know, thinking that he had trouble getting a babysitter, was that he got a blood clot and he died that afternoon. And it was mournful. It was November. The city gets very sad in November and loses all its leaves and get these sort of burning smells from upriver and from stuff floats down from the mountains and people start drowning for some reason as you get close to Christmas in the river. And it was a, it was a devastating moment. Although I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, Bill, one of the final sentences in this book is good food tastes of itself. What do you mean by that? It actually answered a question that I was asking myself when I went to France, which was, can I learn to taste what a sauce-bernet should taste like or what a berou should taste like or what a good chicken should taste like? And could I learn cooking on almost a level of instinct where it's either right or wrong? It tastes right or it tastes wrong. And if it tastes wrong, it can be fixed or it can't be fixed. I think I did learn that, but not quite in the way I expected. It was, you can get in the best food in France, it doesn't have to be fancy preparations. It doesn't have to be done by a celebrated chef. But you learn to taste what a good bread tastes like. And it's just astonishingly clear when you taste it, like this is correct, or a good carrot. It's like, this is correct, or like the best chicken sandwich I ever had in my life was when I went on this long walk and I was staying in a place not far from Brest. as a poulet de Brest that had been roasted and, and all the meat taken off and slammed between two beautiful pieces of bread and I ate it in a after a long hike on a windy spot way out into the, in the middle of nowhere, and I thought, ah, this, this is what chicken should taste like. <laughs> and it's really learning that the best food is made from the best ingredients, and the best ingredients are the ones that haven't been ruined. 
we can all grow with different soils. Different soils will produce their own particular version of what it is that we're wanting to eat, but the true flavor seems to come out of something which just hasn't been ruined. This last question is a selfish one, but I read about this dish early in the book and have searched obsessively online on how to do this to no avail. How do you make Richard's no-fat potato twill or patate twill? Oh, this is his invention for crunch. I have a clandestine. Well, he was okay at it. I took pictures of his Bible, his restaurant Bible, and I do have pictures of the ingredients that go into it. Really what it is, it's like a very sophisticated Pringle potato chip. It's a wafer-thin twill made with potato and gelatin, which is cooked on a silicon pat in the oven until it's like intensified potato without any of the distractions of like a potato chip of salt and fat. And it's just dehydrated, beautiful potato that gives you an unexpected surprise of crunch and flavor when you find it in your burger. And Michelle Richard loved his burgers. It was a ridiculous amount of work. You do not want to make one. Okay. You do not want to try to make them. But inspired by the idea of crunch, and I do make his tuna burgers. I made them for my boys just a couple of weeks ago. I do think most buns are too heavy for the tuna burger, the way he does the tuna burger. And he's got a kind of olive oil brioche type bun that I now make, but you got to make it from scratch. But you don't need to make the potato twill from scratch. You just get some Pringles and slip <laughs> a chip in there. Fair enough. He is Bill Buford, a James Beard Award winner and the author of Heat, Among the Thugs, and his newest book, Dirt, Adventures in Lyon as a Chef in Training, Father and Sleuth Looking for the Secret of French Cooking. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Bill, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Thank you. Thank you for having me.